Again, at verse 12 of Psalm 90 that Mike read just a moment ago. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days, Moses pleads to God. You know, it's interesting, this is the only psalm that is uh, credited to Moses. Do you remember how old Moses was when God called Moses through a burning bush to help lead the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the promised land? Do you remember how old Moses was when God called him? Eighty years old. Eighty years old. At the age of 80, very few people are looking for a career change, right? But he was called at the age of 80 to, to lead God's people. And notice in uh, verse 10 of our text, Moses writes these words, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Do you know what the average lifespan is for an American male today? It's 78.7. Uh, 78.7. I look around this church, and I can see that some of us are above average. Good for you all. Moses, as you know the story, as it's presented to us in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he died at the age of 120. He was called at the age of 80. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. He died right before the people of Israel went into the promised land. And notice what Moses says about life in verse 3 and 4. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Moses realizes that in God's eyes, a thousand years to us is, is like a watch in the night to him. In light of eternity, our lives are very short. Even Moses, who lived at 120 years, sees that life is ultimately very, very short in light of eternity. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I, I hear about someone my age or younger who has died unexpectedly, it helps remind me of the fragility of this life, the brevity of this life, that none of us really know when or how we're going to die. So how can we make sure that our life really matters? Or as Moses prays at the end of Psalm 90, let us establish the work of our hands upon us, O God. Yes, establish the work of our hands. How can we make sure that God establishes the work of our hands so that the legacy of our life is not just simply here on this earth, but, but it goes beyond. It, it truly truths to be eternal. Well, the key to having a lasting legacy, to making sure that our life lasts, can be found in the New Testament reading we have this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. It may be found on page 1245 of your Red Pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Paul to write this powerful letter to the church in Ephesus. God, we pray that by your spirit, as we read these words, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. And by your spirit, help establish the work of our hands. Help our life to leave a lasting legacy. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Now, before I begin to read Ephesians 6, I want to give a little bit of background to the letter to the Ephesians. You may remember, uh, we studied this not long ago. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. While he himself is in prison in the city of Rome, 
He writes to encourage them and to remind this predominantly Gentile church or non-Jewish church that God chose them before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's eyes. And it reminds these Gentiles and the Jews as well that all of us are ultimately saved by grace alone through faith alone. For in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Paul writes these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After explaining that we were saved by grace through faith, and it's a gift of God, not something we can boast of, and that God has saved us for good works, he begins to, in Ephesians 4 to 5, to talk about these good works. These good works like walking in love, speaking the truth in love, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He encourages the church and all of us here today. And as he talks about these good works for both the household and for the workplace, he helps us see that while we're trying to do the good works of God, certainly the devil will try to fluster us and, and try to lead us astray by his schemes. And so Paul encourages us in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God. And using images that we find in the book of Isaiah, he tells us to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, to put on the shoes for the gospel of peace, to put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he writes these powerful words on how to exactly put on that armor of God. He says this in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's look again at Ephesians 6, verse 18, those first few words. Praying at all times in the Spirit. As we battle the, the spiritual powers of this present darkness, he's encouraging us to pray at all times in the Spirit. As you find our midst, ourselves in the midst of spiritual warfare, we've got to pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, what is prayer exactly? And how do we pray in the Spirit? Well, prayer is simply a, a conversation with God. We, we talk to God, we, we share our concerns with God, and, and then we, we listen to God. In fact, a great model for prayer is represented by the acronym ACTS, ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. In fact, our order of worship is, is modeled after that. I, I offered an opening prayer of adoration, you know, as we call, use the Word of God to call us to worship. I offered a prayer of adoration where we adore God and we recognize who God is. God is holy and His name, as we say in the Lord's Prayer, should be hallowed. And, and we use the different names that we find for God, like Lord and, and Father and, and Abba and Great I Am and Good Shepherd. And we, we adore and we address God. We adore God for who God is. But like the prophet Isaiah, as we come into the presence of God in prayer, we recognize God's holiness, and as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, he, he recognized his own sinfulness. For Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, after coming to the presence of Almighty God, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. As after we adore God, then we, we humbly confess our sins to God, as we did just a moment ago through the corporate prayer of confession. 
We confess our sins knowing that, that we are in need of God's forgiveness. As John the Apostle writes in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, he writes these words, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to confess our sins because we are unjust, unrighteous, and we need God's forgiveness. We need to be reminded of God's grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. And so as we adore God and come into the presence of God, praising God for who He is, we humbly recognize that we have not been who God wants us to be. And so we confess our sins, and then we thank God for His grace and forgiveness. We thank God for all that He's done for us in creating us and in saving us by sending His Son, Jesus, as as Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his great love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He, he paid the price for our sins so we could be reconciled to God once and for all. In fact, on the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so we could have the assurance of eternal life and the gift of a new life as we turn to him. And so in adoring God and confessing God and thanking God for his grace and his forgiveness, then we make our supplications to God. We ask God for his help. Now, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, it's kind of the model prayer which Jesus gives to us in a certain, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. We can see that, well, supplication is important for us to do, but, but our first supplication should really be asking for God's will. In fact, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, there's six petitions. And the first three petitions are actually about God's will. Hallowed be God's name, God's kingdom come, God's will be done. Our supplication should be led by, by seeking what God wants for us and, and seeking His will above all else. But many of our prayers are simply filled with what we want, right? But a prayer guided by the Spirit of God is going to lead us to pray to seek His will above all else. Now, to pray in the Spirit means to be led by the Spirit, where the Spirit intercedes for us and helps guide us. We know this because one well, Romans chapter 8, 26 to 27, Paul writes these words. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. To pray according to the Spirit is to pray according to the will of God. And how do we know what the will of God is? By the word of God that the Holy Spirit has inspired. In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, they, in question 98, they, they write a beautiful <clears throat> definition of what prayer is. The early reformers are saying, let's try to teach the faith, and let's answer what is prayer. So I'm going to ask the question, and if we can all answer it together, that would be great. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Notice that it says we're praying for things agreeable to God's will. We want God's will to be done. Why? Because we know that God loves us with an unconditional, sacrificial love. And God's will is the best thing for us. And notice that it said we should, we should pray in the name of Christ. Jesus invites us in the Gospel of John to pray in his name, to ask in his name, asking for his will to be done asking for the Son to, to serve as our great ambassador to God, to, to speak for us, to help us in our times of need. And of course, we are called to pray according to the will of God. And the will of God is what's presented to us in His Word. In fact, the very next question, the Shorter Catechism, kind of builds on this idea. 
It says, what, has, what rule has God given to our direction in prayer? Please answer. The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. If we want to pray by the Spirit, we want to pray according to God's will. And we know God's will through the Word of God. And of course, the model prayer for all of us is the, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, which begins, of course, as I said, with those first three petitions. Hallowed be His name. Let's adore God. You know, and, and His kingdom come, which is asking for the return of Christ. And His will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So what is God's will? What is God's will for us? Well, according to Ephesians, Paul helps us see that God's will is that we might pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, and to that end, to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints, to not only pray for ourselves, but to pray for everyone who believes in Jesus. And also for Paul, he says, also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul is praying that, that he might have courage and clarity in proclaiming the mystery of the gospel. What's the mystery of the gospel exactly? Well, it's interesting. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, these words. He uses that same Greek word mysterion in Ephesians 6. He uses it earlier in Ephesians 3 to say this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by, the, by revelation, as I have written briefly. That the mystery, the mystery of the gospel, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. If you read the book of Acts, chapter 9, you'll see the story of Paul's conversion. Initially, he went by his Jewish name, Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. But what happened? God blinds Saul on the road to Damascus, and God speaks to him from heaven, and in fear and desperation, Saul cries out and says, who are you, Lord? And, and Jesus says, I am Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. When he persecuted Stephen, persecuted the body of Christ, it's as if he's persecuting Jesus. And so Saul it has a radical conversion experience where he gives his life to, to Christ and he begins to go by his, his uh, Roman name, Paul. In fact, God has called Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And if you read Acts 22, you'll see that the reason that Paul is in prison and writing to the church in Ephesus is because of his commitment to preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to Gentiles, to non-Jews. You see, after his missionary journeys, Paul was in Jerusalem, and he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish temple, which should have never happened. So they begin to arrest Paul, and, and they begin to persecute him, and, and finally Paul's able to give himself a defense. And as he begins to explain his story, he begins to tell his personal testimony of how God met him on the road to Damascus, and, and how Jesus is Lord. He's, he's fully God and fully man. He's the Savior of the world, the Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied about, and how, how Jesus lived in, in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, then he died as the perfect sacrifice on a cross for our sins, and then he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf. And then Paul goes on to explain that, that God has called him to bring this good news to Gentiles. As you read in Acts 22, and as soon as he says Gentiles, the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem is in an uproar because it's anathema. There's no way in the eyes of the Jews in first century Jerusalem to think that God would want good news to be preached to sinful Gentiles. 
You see, in the first century, the Jews had worked very hard to isolate themselves from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, like the Romans who were currently occupying their country with their different pagan religions, and they wanted to stay a pure, holy people, but they'd forgotten what God had told their father Abraham to be. And Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, we read about how God calls Abraham, and he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing, that all families on the earth will be blessed through Abraham. The Jews were chosen. Yes, they are God's chosen people, but they were chosen to be a blessing to others. And of course, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we can see that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. He's the fulfillment of this covenant promise that all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed through him. That's why in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. The mystery of the gospel is that this good news of God's saving love that we find in Jesus, it's for everyone. And Paul is asking the church in Ephesus to pray that he might have courage and clarity in proclaiming this good news. Now, why would Paul, the apostle, need courage and clarity? I mean, he's responsible for writing much of the New Testament. He's been preaching the gospel in different places, different cities for years now. Why does he need courage and clarity? Well, Paul's in prison in Rome because when he was arrested in Jerusalem and they were about to persecute him, as a Roman citizen, he he uh, cried out to Caesar and asked that he might be tried before Caesar in his court. So as a Roman citizen, he was allowed to be sent to Rome to be tried before Caesar and Caesar's court. And Paul is praying that as he stands before Caesar's court, what a wonderful opportunity he's going to have to proclaim the good news to the most powerful human being alive at the time, to Caesar and to Caesar's court. And so he's asking God to give him courage and clarity as he proclaims this good news. Do we need courage and clarity to proclaim the good news of Jesus today? If Paul did, I'm certain we do. You see, we live in a postmodern world where truth is relative and the exclusive claims of Christ are outright rejected by our world today. Because, well, if truth is relative and based on one's experience, then the absolute claims of Jesus, where Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our culture says, no, no. That might be true for you, but that can't be true for everyone. In fact, the only absolute truth or only absolute claim of postmodernity is that there are no absolutes, which is kind of an oxymoron. That's an absolute statement itself, right? So how are we to preach the gospel, the good news of God's love in in a culture that rejects absolute truth? We should do what Paul did when he was before the Jews in Jerusalem. He told his testimony of how God had changed his life. You know, in this postmodern world where truth is based on one's experience, no one can deny your personal experience of how Jesus has changed your life. The most powerful way we can point others to Jesus is to tell them about how Christ has changed our lives. Of course, before we tell someone about how Jesus has changed our life, it's a pretty good idea to find out about, well, who they are and what's their story. And, and here in Amarillo, we have a lot of de-churched people. Not that many unchurched people. Most people have been to church at some point, but many of them are no longer going. Somehow they got burned by the church or they've drifted away from the church. Who do you know in your neighborhood, maybe in your schools, at your place of work, maybe even in your own family, who needs to know and be reminded of God's great love for them? 
I found the best way to enter into these conversations is by first getting to know their story. Find out, well, did they grow up going to church or synagogue or mosque? or What's their background, their faith background? If they quit going, why did they quit going? And as you ask questions, the, the natural thing socially is for them to ask back of you. Well, what's your story? How did you come to faith? Why, why is this so important to you? And you could begin to tell them about Jesus and how Jesus has changed your life. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Yeah, Howard, but I grew up in the church. I can't remember a time when I didn't know who Jesus is. I mean, I've always known who Jesus is. That's my story as well. I grew up in the church. But I can think about my life, and I can think about distinct points in my life when I wasn't really following Jesus, and I made the decision to follow him. And that has made all the difference. That I, it wasn't until I made the decision in high school to live my life for him that I began to experience his peace, his shalom, his joy. How might you share that story with others? And notice what Paul is encouraging us to do. That before we share, we need to pray. We need to pray that God might give us courage and clarity in sharing that message. And we should also pray that God might give the person we're talking to ears to hear. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago, we're justified by faith alone. And faith is ultimately a gift. It was God who initiated initiated the relationship with Saul and blinded him on the road to Damascus to allow him to see the mystery of the gospel. It's God who moves in our lives to help us see the good news of God's love. And so we need to pray that God might move in the hearts of our family members or our neighbors or our coworkers or our classmates who don't yet know Jesus. And we need to pray that God would give us courage and clarity in communicating that message to others. I saw this done beautifully a couple weeks ago. Uh, several of us had went to Chicago uh, for a church conference, and um, in the wisdom of Southwest Airlines, as we're trying to head to Chicago, they decided to fly us through Las Vegas, Nevada. That's certainly on the way, right? Las Vegas, off the West Coast. So we were in Pacific time, and then we had to go through mountain time and central time again. And when we got to Las Vegas, unfortunately, our plane was delayed an extra two hours. So we didn't get to Chicago until about 1 a.m., and then when we got there, we had to wait for our luggage another hour and a half. I'm pretty sure there was just like one guy running all the luggage at 1 a.m. at Midway Airport in Chicago. It was horrible. So finally, we get our luggage. It's about 2.30 a.m., and we look at the map, and our hotel, because the conference is in St. Charles, Illinois, is in St. Charles, which is another hour and away. Well, we get outside to try and find a ca taxi cab, and thankfully, there was one minivan taxi cab that could take all six of us, but the cab driver was dead asleep. Uh, and so Kim knocked on the window door to kind of wake him up and said, hey, could you take us to St. Charles? And, and we agreed, and we loaded up, and we started to drive away. And the cab driver, uh, and Kim asked the, the cab driver, hey, what's your name? And he says, well, I'm Mustafa Muhammad. Guess where I'm from? And Kim said, I don't know, the Middle East? You know, it's a good guess. And, and they went back and forth, and eventually Mustafa re revealed that he was from Egypt. And then he asked us, as you would socially, naturally, where are you from? And, and Kim explained that we're from Texas, and we're actually here for a church conference that's going to be held in St. Charles. And then Mustafa began to open up with all kinds of questions. He goes, oh, well, you're Christian. Well, why are there so many denominations in Christianity? What do you think about the Pope? What does it mean to be born again exactly? And he began to answer, ask all these questions. And Kim graciously was explaining what it means to be born again and, and how we do love the Pope, but that as Presbyterians, we believe Jesus is the head of the church. And why are there so many denominations? And how do we interpret the Bible? And what do we understand? And ultimately, he helped Mustafa see that the biggest difference between our faith and his faith, because he's Muslim, is that they believe Jesus was a prophet, but we believe Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. It was a very gracious and kind conversation with a lot of back and forth where Kim would ask questions of Mustafa, and Mustafa would then in turn ask questions of Kim. 
Now, the reason that conversation went so well is one, Kim's got gifts for evangelism, but something Kim may not have known is that while he was talking, several of us were in the back praying, praying that God might give Kim courage and clarity to communicate the good news of God's love, praying that God might open the heart of Mustafa to hear what Kim was saying. The first step to effective evangelism is always prayer. Before Billy Graham would ever come to a city, whether it be in the United States or anywhere around the world, he would harness the churches, the local churches, to spend weeks in prayer, preparing the soil of people's hearts to hear the good news of God's love. If we want God to establish the work of our hands as we pray in Psalm 90 with Moses, we need to pray. We need to pray that God might use us to point others to him that God might open the hearts of other people, that they might be receptive to the good news of God's love, that God might use us to be an instrument of his grace. And next weekend, we have a wonderful opportunity to invite someone to come and join us. You may notice that on your pew seats, there's these invite cards. I would encourage you to take one and give this to a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor or a family member and say, please come and see Lee Strobel, a man who was previously an atheist who's become a born-again Christian, and his journey of faith, how he helps us see the reasons for faith, that as he studied the evidence of the resurrection, he realized that the most reasonable explanation for the life of the disciples and the existence of the church is that Jesus Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. It's the most logical explanation for the life of the disciples. I hope you'll invite someone. And if you don't know who you should invite, pray. Pray at all times that the Spirit might open a door for you to invite someone. I've been giving these things away to every restaurant I go to, every waitress I've met. I've been giving them, inviting them to join us next Sunday to hear Lee Strobel. For we know the first step to effective evangelism is prayer. So let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that as Paul prayed for courage and clarity, you answered his prayers that he might speak a word of truth, speak the truth in love to Caesar's court. We pray, O Lord, that you would Help us to be bold in our faith as Paul was, who despite the persecution, the floggings, the imprisonment, even the stonings, he continued to proclaim boldly the good news of your love. Lord, help us to proclaim that good news with love and truth, being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us and lead us to who it is you want to invite to this wonderful event next Sunday and that we might boldly invite everyone we know to come join us to hear how we know for sure that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, and in knowing and in believing, they all might be saved. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.